0: Hello, and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. My name is Alina Jenkins, and in this episode, we're speaking to Christina Santange. Christina is a professor in the Department of Medicine at the Faculty of Medicine and Health Scientists at the University de Sherbrooke in Quebec. She completed her PhD at University Laval in Measurement and Assessment in 2007, and she did her post fellowship at the Medical Council of Canada. Since 2008, Christina has been a scientist at the CPSS, the Centre for Health Sciences Education. Her research programme stems from a psychometric perspective, wanting to quantify measurement error and distinguish it from the true score. But what has evolved to draw outside the traditional psychometric lines when tackling issues of validity? Christina, welcome. Hi. Now, let me start. Uh, we just mentioned there that you're, you're looking at this research from a psychometric perspective, but taking it perhaps outside the normal area. So, what are you doing differently to what's been done before? So, validity for the longest time has been a
1: a statistic problem. So, we want to quantify measurement error. So, we can say this score is reliable at 90%. We can predict 90% of success on that future exam. So it's really about quantifying. But validity at the root of it is about the interpretation of assessment data. So we could look at assessment data as narrative comments given to students as feedback. We wouldn't be able to quantify measurement error of narrative comments. So I'm trying to look at the different assessment data that we have and try to figure out what strategies we could use to establish a certain level of quality. I don't use validity when I talk about different assessment data, but it's just trying to get a sense of the quality and uh, of the validity of the decisions we make using those assessment data.
0: I'd love to know how you approach that, because that sounds like a really huge challenge. <laughs> so Where do you even start? So what, you know, what's been going on over the last few years for you? So
1: one of the first things that I did that was not psychometrics was trying to understand raters and how they go about making a judgment about performance, So we ran this experience where we had uh, an average trainee, if I can say so, and of the 11 expert raters that we had, I think five failed her and six passed her. So we were talking with them to try to understand what's at the root of those differences. Why do people fail her? Why do people pass her? So that is one of the things that I've been trying to do to understand the validity of the decisions we make. Mm-hmm. Because half of them thought she wasn't good enough to pass. Mm-hmm. While half of them thought, yeah, sure, she can move on to the next phase and, and go on. So it, it's, it's never an easy question. It's never an easy, straightforward answer, but it's trying to document those little things that can, help us make sense of the data. Mm-hmm. So it's knowing that there's subjectivity out there and it's trying to understand where it comes from. Mm-hmm. What are some of those little things then that you were that you were looking at? So from that study, we saw that people's background made a world of difference. So if I've been practicing in a set way, my medicine or my approach to, to patient care, I expect my student to reproduce that. It's this I don't want to see an internal bias because that makes it sound negative. It has a, a negative connotation. but I come in looking at the resident with certain expectations. can be due to my personal practice, my training, my age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those were little factors that we saw that could influence or could explain some of the subjectivity
0: mm-hmm. of judgment. Yeah, and and that's quite a, I mean, you you mentioned internal bias there and and you have to be careful around that. But I wonder if we all have that and that has a massive impact on, on our learners' experience. So how do you think your research might help to overcome that? So one of the things we could think of doing
1: is faculty development, but that enables the supervisors to be aware. Of their own preconceptions or expectations—the word, the residents—to be able to regulate for those expectations, expectations, and 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 distance themselves from it, and and maybe look at it objectively. So that is one way, but that is a very psychometric perspective of. Like there's one truth and there is one way of, of getting at a rate or a judgment, a good judgment. The other way is just getting multiple pictures. Because through multiple pictures, uh, we can get a better sense. It's not I have one definite performance and one definite score, but overall that trainee is doing fairly well. Mm-hmm. So we can be confident that it would be reproduced in other settings. Yeah.
0: Okay, through through this process, I mean, I would imagine that as you as you approached it, you were expecting certain outcomes, or you were expecting to find certain things. Were there some surprises along the way? Something that you hadn't expected to pick up on? <laughs> so one of the yeah, one of my expectations
1: going into this was that raiders became experts, and we saw less variability between raiders. So that. You assess, you assess five years, ten years, fifteen years, then you get standard standardized. That's not what happened. We selected our raters in our study, and in that study, based on experience, based on peer recommendation, based on trainee recommendation, as them being the best assessors. And the Department of Medicine, mm. half of them flunked the trainee half of them passed training. So it's not a matter of expertise and assessing for a certain time. There's innate differences and it's how you approach the assessment. So that was a surprise to me, I was convinced we're going to see more standardization with experience
0: and expertise yeah. yeah so so what does that mean sort of moving forward how are you are you having to adapt your research um you know what what are your sort of plans over the next year or so where, where do you want it to take you so i uh, i'm like a busy bee
1: at tackling assessment i've looked at reader cognition i've looked at Newer forms of assessment, like longitudinal assessment, trying to track progress in trainees and trying to find what's the difficulty in doing that and how we could approach it. And in in those studies, we've just seen that communication and knowledge were the key factors in being able to implement quality assessment. Uh, Next steps where I'll be going is, is trying to integrate assessment trying to integrate technology to assessment practices to enhance the quality and the experience Mm. for the students. I'm also looking at integrating patient in the assessment. What can we learn from patient? Can they provide a different perspective on student performance? And is that complementary? And can we give weight and value to their voice? So those are the things that I'm playing with right now.
0: Yeah, it's great, I mean, how this this all links together, but I just wanted to maybe just expand the thought further around technology and patients that you just mentioned there. And I know that some of your research is sort of leveraging both of those to enhance the quality of the health profession trainee's assessment. So, what is, have you actually started looking at that yet or is it sort of in the pipeline? But What have you discovered? So, for technology, if you've been to the doctor's office recently,
1: most likely they've used their iPhone, they've looked up something on the computer. So, we expect this in practice, that the physicians, the clinician have access to this wealth of knowledge and information. Yet, we train our students to have all the information in their brains, arrive at the exam and know everything by heart. And most likely they'll forget it. So what we're trying to reproduce is exams that would mimic practice mm-hmm. where we could let students leverage the technology to free up space in their mind, but tackle more complex problems. So we are on the first step of doing that. It's, it's really understanding what we're calling electronic information seeking behavior so when do physicians use the technology why how and then we'll try to reproduce that in an assessment yeah so we're
0: at that first step right now that sounds like a that sounds like a challenge because of course how do you get that balance between obviously you have to know a certain amount of things to pass the exam so I mean, is that something you're going to be investigating as to where is that balanced, as to when you can say it's all right to go and leverage this technology? It's exactly it. The French European would say you have internal
1: resources and you have to know when you need external resources and how you mobilize them to solve mm-hmm. complex problems. So we will give students the opportunity to use several technologies but we'll also be looking at the use they make of the technology was it just going fishing trying everything out there and trying to find a solution or was it a purposeful use of the technology really looking for a specific answer to a specific question so that's
0: the kind of things we'll be trying to figure out yeah and, and with with all of this sort of in mind where where do you want it to take you or where do you think how do you think this is going to impact the field of medical education? My dream is going to change exams.
1: We're going to leave the, the road, the recall exams, like drowning myself in content just to be able to recruditate on an exam and then forget it. We're going to mimic practice and teach, hopefully, teach trainees to know how to use the technology and when to use the technology. When decipher which knowledge they really need to have and possess and which knowledge they can access using technology in a purposeful way. So it would be for very different exams in my mind, higher level, higher cognitive level exams, where we just avoid the memory recall and, and get at the problem
0: solving of what we see in clinic and health professions. I think this is really exciting because I think this has implications and potential impacts outside the world of medical education if you think about traditional exams i'm just thinking about you know my son having uh, you know a few years ago done his a levels and the amount of as you say i've just got to take all this knowledge to then spit out an exam will i ever use it again uh, i think this is a really exciting way to help all kinds of students learn is is that perhaps
1: a dream as well. <laughs> that's what we're selling <laughs> in, in the proposal that we just submitted. That's what we're selling. We're hoping that it will have impact in higher education more generally.
0: Mm-hmm. So outside
1: of uh, medical
0: education, but we're going to be testing it out in, in medical education yeah. in, in the first go. So in, in the tests that you've done so far, and I know this is very early days, what's been the feedback from, from students. Have you, have you been in a, it's a situation where you're sort of trying out these, these theories and ideas and what, what are, they, what are they saying? We're not even at the level of trying out. This is like a baby idea that I'm sharing with you. You're getting a
1: scoop. We're just trying at the level of trying to understand what physicians do. Because yep. that's the first step before we try to mimic this mm-hmm. in an exam. So the little things that we've learned is physicians have a question. They need a question before they start seeking information. They look at the credibility of the source. They look at the efficiency of the source. What's the easiest thing? What's the easiest way to get the answer? And then we're trying to decipher all of the different reasons mm. that they would look into the technology so we can use the correct
0: technology. Yeah, are you? What's what's your situation, Christina? Because I am speaking to to all of the fellows, and some still having to do their day job as such, alongside the research. Are you able to concentrate on this full time, um, or are you having to juggle? No, I hold the research chair, so I
1: have most of my time to do research, supervise trainees. Um,
0: so that's basically what I do. Yeah. yeah what a fantastic job it's- Yes I'm pretty lucky <laughs> <laughs> and and I wanted to ask you about the experience of the fellows of being part of this program of of k i prime and I know you know we're sort of on the, on day one and we're all kind of getting to know each other but when you got the when you got the message that you were invited to come along, what's your feelings about it, and what are you hoping that it could potentially do for your research so it's really interesting that you asked
1: that because for me. The the catalyst fact was earlier than getting the invitation. It was getting the invitation to submit a letter to be considered. At that point, having to take the step back and look at my my program of research, look at look at what I've done until now, made me realize everything that I've done. It, it was an awesome, a mm. great opportunity to just oh. This is what I've done. I man- I've managed to do this. I can tie things together. And that jump started. Oh, maybe we need to look at integrating technology. We're not being like, we're not doing authentic assessment. We need to look at that. We're not integrating patient voice in our assessment, but we see we have programmatic assessment. So it also ad- identified some blind spots that we have in general. So just that even if I wasn't invited, was awesome. It was amazing. Yeah. So I'm just hoping to, to, to get feedback on those ideas yeah. and shaping
0: and being able to sell those ideas a bit better. It's interesting you talk about this idea of reflection because we've been talking about that on some of of the other podcasts. And and so that's, you know, it's part of medical education. And actually, as a medical education researcher, that's exactly what you're doing is giving giving yourself that time to have reflection. And I think that's very important for anybody, whatever they're doing in their career is to remind themselves of everything they've achieved. Because we tend to forget, don't we? Oh, yes. And oh, yes. I am just. I would imagine that that actually also gives you tremendous confidence. It does. It does uh, give a confidence
1: boost because, as you said, we forget because we're so busy doing. Mm. We have to submit a grant. We have to help a student. We have to teach a course. And then we're doing and we're
0: doing. And, and just stopping and, and looking at it, it it's very uh, fulfilling. Yeah. And the other thing that we've been talking about with some of the other fellows is around mentorship and the fantastic support that you all give each other. And you're probably here today because of some mentors in your life. And I'm just wondering, you know, if you wanted to sort of name them and say <laughs> thank you, Um, but what how – how mentorship has perhaps impacted your career. So this is one of the most collegial and uh,
1: warm communities that I've seen. I'm not originally from Medad, so I was transposed in Medad back in 2007. Uh, So if I have to give a shout out, I'd be pleased. Brian Hodges has been there since the beginning and has been wonderful. Kevin Eva, Lorelei Lingard, Mm -hmm. um, Glenn Regehr. Those at uh, Tim Wood, those have been wonderful and marvelous people, and so generous of their time in, in helping me and so many others shape mm. our thoughts, uh, our programs of research. So,
0: yeah. And of course, you've mentioned three previous winners of the prize there: Glenn and Lorelei and Brian. Do you have a thought as to why Canada is so good at medical education research? Because if you look at a lot of the prize winners, they have come from, from Canada. And I just wondered if you had any, any thoughts through your experience of perhaps why Canada is, is so good. I would like to say it's the people,
1: mm. the collegiality that exists in Canada, the support that we give each other. But it's not necessarily there in, in other disciplines than medical education. I think it's part chance and, and part purposeful. Mm-hmm. The way the centers were developed, one center grew, helped other center grew, help other center grew. So although there are 17 different medical schools, they're not necessarily 17 different research centers, but they're all interconnected. Mm-hmm. We meet yearly. Center di- directors meet yearly. They help each other. Big centers help little centers. Senior researchers help junior researchers. I, I, it's just in the, fabric of life of medical education has it's been developed
0: in Canada so Mm. I think it's part of it and because awesome people are everywhere yeah did you did you get a sense of this kind of sense of community and mentorship Because you said you know you didn't start off in medical education so I'm I I guess really why did you move from where you started in, into this? I'm fascinated how people go, actually, that's where I want to go. For me, that's that's a very,
1: very, very funny story. I took a pause out of my PhD at one point, because sometimes that happened. And I were uh, I went to work at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. And I met wonderful people, Meredith Marks being one of them. That loved assessment as much as I did. I had never had that in Universidad. Like people were disgruntled with assessment; they didn't understand why it existed and why it should be taught, and all of that. And then there's this college of people that love assessment; they do assessment, and that and meeting Brian at the college and and other people made me say, "I want to be a part of them," and and. And you just, when you start to get to know Brian and, and Meredith at the time, you just see the warmth and the acceptance. Um, so that, that's at a, it's just a little turn of events in my life that brought me to the college, met those people, saw that pe- they were my people.
0: They loved assessment as much as I did. Yeah. So that brought me to them.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think actually.
0: I've ever worked with such a group of people who have that kind of passion and support and love and it's infectious actually. I can see just talking to you, Christina, how much you love it. Just as as the final question, if we put yourself in a time machine and we go forward five years, ten years, where do you want where do you see yourself and where do you see your research?
1: My research will always be about assessment, but I'm hoping that our behavior able to translate it better for people to be able to uptake and implement changes in their assessment practices so more translational research I'm hoping to get into Uh, where I see myself I, I hope that I'm helping the juniors coming into the field like I do with my lab right now and my students, my PhD, my master's students. I love to do that. And I hope that I'll be given the opportunity to continue
0: uh, in in that line of mentoring if i can say so yeah i'm sure you will christina it's lovely to speak to you thank you for joining us today thank you so much for having me and thank you everybody listening at home we will be back very soon with another episode of the ki crime podcast 2022